and welcome to Understanding Dysphagia Podcast, a 10-part series with the Dysphagia Outreach Project. I'm your host, Michelle Dawson, MSCCC SLP CLC, regularly the host of First Bed Fun Functional, a speech therapy podcast sponsored by SpeechTherapyPD.com. In honor of Dysphagia Awareness Month, the Dysphagia Outreach Project has pulled some of their amazing leaders together to share their knowledge with the world in hopes of raising awareness about dysphagia across the life continuum, as well as raising awareness regarding the dynamic volunteer work that Dysphagia Outreach Project does every day for individuals of all ages with dysphagia across that life continuum. And this episode... Y'all, this episode is dedicated to the end of life care. Dun, dun, dun. Y'all, that's the crucial conversation that we have got to have. So without further ado, please allow me to introduce today's guest, Caitlin Saxteen, MSCCC, SLP, BCSS, CBIS is a medical speech language pathologist currently working in the acute care setting and has experience in subacute rehabilitation outpatient, and home health. Caitlin is the Director of Speech Pathology and a Speakers Bureau Committee member of Long Island Speech Language Hearing Association and co-chair of the Adult Medical Dysphagia Track for the 2021 New York State Speech Language Hearing Association Convention. She's an active member of ASHA's Special Interest Group 13, Swallowing and Swallowing Disorders, the Dysphagia Research Society, and New York City Dysphagia Study Group. Caitlin has also had an extensive background with East End Hospice, volunteering with this organization for nearly 15 years, and holds CAPC designation in communication skills, pain management, symptom management, and best practices in dementia care and caregiver support through the Center to Advance Palliative Care. She is a six-time ASHA ACE Award recipient, has been selected to present at the local, state, and national level, and featured as a guest speaker on the Swallow Your Pridecast with the lovely Teresa Richards with the Med SLP Collective and the Speech Uncensored Podcast with the dynamic Leanne Porter with SpeechTherapyPD.com. Y'all, she's like my, my sister podcaster. Caitlin, I am so honored and excited to have you here because this is the topic we need to talk about, but like we don't really want to talk about. So ta-da! <laughs> thank you. And thank you so much for having me on today. I'm excited to talk about this topic. It typically is such an uncomfortable topic to talk about. We don't typically talk about death and dying. It is an emotionally loaded space, but there is such good work to be done in this area. Yes. Well, you're on the adult end of the spectrum and I get the tiny pint-sized version. But honestly, truth be told, I am the one that gets called when it's a palliative hospice care for our infants, toddlers, and young children that have a PFD or dysphagia. So I was recording with some of your fellow DOP folks yesterday, and we were talking about how there's a lot of support out there for end-of-life care for our adults if you go to look for it, but there is scant to Midland for our little ones, which is really hard and something I would love to see improved, but I don't know if at this season in my life I'm capable of contributing. <laughs> so 
So <laughs> thank you. Thank you for contributing. <laughs> okay. But like how in the world, I mean, you go through grad school and you're like, I'm going to teach everybody to swallow, but you're teaching everybody to swallow at the end. So how did, what made you become an SLP and then specialize in this? Cause this is a subspecialty of a subspecialty. So lay it on us, lady. I really do love quality of life, talking about quality of life, advocating for quality of life for my patients. I volunteer with my local East End Hospice. I've been volunteering with them for a very long time. Um, so actually through them, I've done several trainings on bereavement and end of life and communication, which is so important. And so I've been able to carry that over into my career where I just fell in love with end of life and palliative care. And I fortunately have a great palliative care team where I work and we have a caregiver center, which we are able to help support our caregivers and host support groups during and also after. So we also do some bereavement services. And so it's so great to be able to carry that through personally and then also professionally. Now, we had a a brief sidebar right before we started. Are you a Long Island native or as we would say in the South, are you a come here? Like, did you move to Long Island? (laughs) No, I am a Long Island native, born and raised. Actually, I was born in the hospital I work in, (laughs) which is crazy. (laughs) So I've never left. (laughs) (laughs) Never left. Yes, that's that's awesome. My my future sister-in-law is from Staten Island. uh, She's a hoot, but I mean, they live in DC. Well, Alexandria, but like... But yes, DC. So um, (laughs) close enough. Yeah. I mean, that's just literally like spitting distance, but yes. Okay. All right. So we've, we've got a lot of ground to cover in the next hour. So let's just kind of like jump right in. Are you ready? Yes. (laughs) Okay. Beautiful. Can you please explain what is palliative care? One, I always, the diphthong vowel there throws me. And two, the clarification between palliative versus hospice, because that, I I do know a lot of folks get tripped up on what's the difference. Yes. And it's so vital for us as speech pathologists to know and understand these fundamental terms and have a real clear foundation of the vocabulary so that we understand it, but then also we can help educate our patients, their caregivers, and anybody else that we're working with. So palliative care is not the same as hospice. That's often misconstrued or misunderstood. Typically, people think of hospice as, you know, like a dirty word. We associate that people or patients are giving up or we're letting them die. And we know that this is definitely not the case. So palliative care, we can think of it more as an umbrella term. I like to say that palliative care providers or quality of life specialists. So that's kind of what they specialize in. So it's specialized medical care for people living with a serious illness. So this type of care is focused on relief from symptoms and stress of a serious illness. So it encompasses advanced directives, decision-making, the goals of care, pain and symptom management, and then it can also encompass hospice. So really the goal of palliative care is to improve quality of life for both the patient and also the family. Whereas hospice care is more of a philosophy of care that focuses on the palliation of a chronically ill or terminally ill patient. So hospice care is reserved for terminally ill patients when treatment is no longer curative. So a physician must state that a patient will expire within six months, assuming that the disease takes its normal course. 
So really palliative care is that end of life care where treatment is no longer curative. So they are two very different things. And it is so important for us to understand and have that foundation of the difference between them. I've had a lot of parents, and again, I'm on like the tiny side. So when I get a patient discharged from the NICU, because I I don't work in the NICU. I wouldn't want to work in the NICU. My baby spent like a night in the NICU, and like that was confirmation that this is not for me. But I get them when they come home from the NICU after like a severe intraventricular hemorrhage. And they're dealing with postpartum. They're dealing with, I've had a couple that had non-accidental trauma at the hands of a babysitter or a relative. And which is, I mean, now you've got PTSD and you have all of those factors. But what I have found is that often our families don't understand that you know, when they're discharged home with palliative, they think that that means hospice. They think that people are giving up on their infant. Do you see that with adults as well? And how do you navigate that conversation? Well, one, I give you so much credit for being where you are. I think it's so amazing. And yes, I definitely see that. Sometimes, you know, you say palliative care and people's eyes light up and they're like, no, no, we're That's not what we need. Even physicians, sometimes if I'm recommending palliative care, they're like, oh, no, they're not ready for that. And it's not necessarily, again, end of life. It's just really that extra level of support. So I always like to use as an example, if a patient has a new diagnosis of COPD or chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, and now they require, let's just say, oxygen at home. So now this is all new for the patient and their caregiver. We might initiate palliative care really to provide that extra layer of support to the patient and their caregiver to assist in navigating this new life. So if they are new to oxygen, how are they going to ambulate with the oxygen at home? How will they leave the house with oxygen? All of those kind of hurdles that we might not think about. And then also they can discuss the disease process. So what the signs and symptoms may be, exacerbations, and then of course discuss advanced directives because it's so important that the family knows what their loved one would want when it comes to that time. Because a lot of times when it is at the end and a family member is unsure, it's very difficult, not only for the patient, but for the family member. And so it's always best that we know what a patient would want. Yes. Especially when your patient has the ability to orate and communicate that. I mean, yeah. on my end of the spectrum, we're not there. So this is problematic, but okay. So the way, the way that I have explained this to my families is that we want to focus on the joy with your tiny human. You want to be able to make beautiful memories and have assistance with those day-to-day details. And palliative care is there to help with the assistance so that you just get to focus on the happy. And that is a very rough summation of a lot of the minutia, the little details. But when I explain it like that, you know, hey, we can we can get respite nursing in and respite care with within the umbrella of palliative care. That will help with the the changing of the diapers because, you know, you have a two-year-old that also needs your assistance or, you know, we've got 
wound care or, you know, because, you know, braces, those AFOs and KFOs, if they're not put on properly, that can have like tissue abrasions and breakdown and like extreme cases. But I see that the least of these, we have some anomalies and that seems to ease it and open the door. Mm -hmm. Now, here's my question. When I think of palliative care, I immediately go in my head to like the dynamic team because I'm a huge fan of interprofessional practice. If you think that you can fix it on your own, then my friend, you have failed before you have even given it a <laughs> shot. <laughs> so like, it. Um, but that's where I go. Palliative care to me is like, sorry, Caitlin, I have boys. So I immediately go to like Marvel universe and like all the superheroes swoop in, but like the superheroes <laughs> are like OT, PT, SLP, but we've got like badges and stars and we're like tough. Who is your superhero alter ego and who's on your team? <laughs> oh, well, I'm going to have to think about this one and get back to you. <laughs> okay, cool. We're good. <laughs> um, so I totally agree with you. And I think that we all have to work as a team. Nothing will get done regardless if we don't. So definitely dependent upon where you are and who's in your facility, or it depends on who's the member of the palliative care team. At my facility, we have two physicians. We have a bunch of nurse practitioners, a social worker. We have, of course, physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech pathologist. The I was going to say the best member of the team, but we all are all great. <laughs> <laughs> um, we also do have um, chaplains. We do have pet therapy right now. That program is on hold because of the pandemic, but we do have that, which is so awesome. I want that. I don't have that. <laughs> I need that. <laughs> it is so great. So hopefully that will be reinstated. Wait, pet therapy. Is it like restricted to just dogs? Please tell me there's a palliative care cat running around. <laughs> right now we only have dogs, but I will inquire if we can get a cat. <laughs> okay. I'm, yes. I mean, I had a pet cat named Frankie. He was a great cat. I always think somebody somewhere could use a palliative care cat. That's awesome. Okay. So on that team, what is the specifics that you do as the speech language pathologist within your within your awesome team there? So we this varies and it varies on the patient, on the case. So I think it's so important for us as speech pathologists to know our role in the team and, and really the value that we can add to the team. So we can assess communication, cognition, or swallowing. Typically, we work with swallowing, at least where I am employed, which is so essential. We know food is life. We live from it, but then we also live for it. And almost all social interaction involves food and drink. So for us, really assessing the swallowing and determining what their swallow function is and the diet recommendation is so vital. And then also providing that education and support and training, whether it is the patient, their caregiver, and even the members on our palliative care team or the other staff members in the facility on what the next steps are, the plan and the goals of care. I have one little girl that I've had the pleasure to be part of her palliative team for two years. Her condition is so rare. It just received a name, I want to say within the last three months, six months, Gold Syndrome, G-O-U-L-D. And she's outlived her prognosis by two years and change. 
And when I received her, she was eight, nine months old. It was palliative care with planned transition to hospice within a matter of like weeks. And kid is thriving, like just Mm -hmm. crushing it. (laughs) Yes. I mean, we we just did an eye gaze device trial and it threw me for a loop to think that within palliative care with a almost three-year-old that I, I mean, well, she's a little over three now that I would be doing a speech generating device trial, but that's part of her right to basic communication. Mm -hmm. And it has been absolutely humbling to be part of that experience as well as navigating diet modifications and, you know, we're pureed foods and still in a bottle, but it's quality, not quantity, and where she is. I mean, developmentally, that's it's still appropriate for her to be on a bottle. I had a student with me when we did the eye gaze trial and when she was doing the PO, she will eventually need a feeding tube. This is the nature of her disease. And the student was like, I didn't know that we could do this. That mom was happy and her kid is is really sick. And I was like, yes, honey. Like, yeah, moms can be happy even when their little ones are, are have a poor prognosis. And that to me summed up palliative care was that we create those moments that, I don't know, they would be lost without us. That sounds so pessimistic, but like that's. No, but that's a great, that is such a great example of the pleasure that you can bring to a patient and their their family, their parents. That's amazing. Yeah. Do you have a case or two that you don't mind sharing with us that stand out, like that really pull in what it means for you to be like life affirming? Like this is why I do the thing that it is that I do. I have a case and I this patient was by far one of my favorite patients who had a stroke and I believe it was a right MCA. I'd have to go back and look. But the patient was gardening and was found down in the yard by family, came into the hospital. They were unable to administer TPA because they were unsure of how long the patient was down for. And the patient was in her early 90s, but she was completely independent. She drove and cooked and did her own finances. And she had a pretty significant dysphagia and cognitively though was intact. So we did a video swallow study and unfortunately had to recommend NPO at the time. She was a great candidate for exercises. So we had dropped an NG tube and we did exercises. Her family was very involved. This was pre-COVID. So they were at bedside 24-7 and were able to do some exercises with her. We ended up repeating the video swallow study almost a week later, which is also unheard of that somebody stays that long, but it did happen. And in the interim, she had met with palliative care and they discussed, you know, advanced directives, what she would want. Prior to this, she was healthy and independent. Her only past medical history was hypertension. So she really was a very healthy person. So this was a huge shock to her and her family. So her biggest statement was that she didn't want to be a burden for her family or for herself. She didn't want to suffer. So the second video swallow study, she did better, but unfortunately still was having a lot of difficulty swallowing. And so we were so happy that she had improved slightly. Um, And so we really wanted her or encouraged her to go to acute rehab. Her family members were also 
very encouraging and really wanted her to go to acute rehab. But she had said, you know, what if I get a G tube or a J tube and I go to rehab and I don't improve? Then what is my quality of life? I I want to eat and drink by mouth and I don't want to be a burden on anybody. And I think that for us, it was just a a real eye opener to say that even though somebody may have improved, because typically when we see strokes, we see that if somebody can follow commands and wants to improve, that they may really have a great outcome. And so for other people, I think it was just an eye opener for us as speech pathologists to see it's not what you want, it's what the patient wants and what they deem a quality of life and what's important to them. So for her, her biggest thing was she didn't want to be a burden. What if she didn't improve? And that was not, she didn't want to be a burden on anybody. She didn't want to be in the unknown. And so I think that was really an interesting case for us. I just got to know, what was she doing in her garden that like exerted her so much? Because I'm about to go pull a boatload of dandelions out of my lemon balm. And I'm like, oh, maybe I should not do that this afternoon. (laughs) Maybe not. No, 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 no. We have clay dirt here where I live. So you have to get the pickaxe out if you go down like, I don't know, six inches into the topsoil, which isn't really topsoil. It's... I don't know, whatever Mr. Mungo and his infinite wisdom like threw down on our front yard. But, um, oh, I'm Mungo home. I'll put you with you later to make sure you're okay. <laughs> yes, yes. Send a quick text message. Are the dandelions okay? <laughs> which, which you're resting heart rate. I once, um, I only laugh. I once got into a fight with my Spanx before I went to give a live lecture and my Fitbit alarm started going off because I thought I was having a cardiac event. I was like, if that doesn't scream middle age, I don't know what does. But folks, the moral of the story is don't get out of the shower and then immediately try to combat Sphinx, let your body dry first. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. That's amazing. That's mildly embarrassingly honest. Oh my gosh. Okay. All right. So see, you have to keep it light when you're talking about death. You, if you don't add the humor in, everybody's going to be like, rah, rah. okay. So, <laughs> that is um, very true. <laughs> yes, it is. Let's talk about alternate means of nutrition and hydration. And and for our palliative hospice patients, is it effective? Is it appropriate? Because I got an opinion and opinions are like, you know what? And everybody's got one, but I'd like to think mine's at least based in a little bit of evidence. So lay it on us, darling. So would you like to share your opinion? Yeah, absolutely. Would I like to share my opinion? (laughs) Honey, am I breathing? (laughs) Um, I I think it's completely personal. I think Mm -hmm. alternate means of nourishment should be a personal decision. However, when I hit the books and I do my research to me for, and once upon a time I did treat adults, it's been a minute, but I did (laughs) for the first six years of my career. And then there was some overlap with peds before I transitioned to just the tiny humans. All the research told me that an alternate means of nourishment did not really truthfully improve quality of life, extend quality of life. And there is also still the risk for aspiration with G-tubes and G-tubes. If somebody is working under the misinformation that a G-tube placement will alleviate aspiration risk factors, that's erroneous because you can aspirate the the contents during a GERD event. Patients still have non-prandial aspiration where they aspirate on dirty bacteria-laden saliva, 
mucus. I've had plenty of patients swallow plenty of things or attempt to swallow plenty of things that they shouldn't. And that's my evidence-based triangle opinion. Yes, I agree with all of that. Um, I think that ah, we definitely I'm need not that. to <laughs> <laughs> definitely we need to base all decisions based on what the the patient deems important to them. So we want to make sure that they are achieving what's most important to them at the end of their life. So you are absolutely right with all of your research. So definitely NAH may be beneficial in the right circumstances. So dependent upon the patient and why they may need alternate means of nutrition, hydration, for instance, somebody who has a temporary inability to swallow. So maybe a new CVA, it could work out really well for them. It may improve their quality of life. However, it does not cure or reverse any terminal disease. So these patients, like you just said, who aspirate, they may be aspirating their own saliva. They may aspirate the feeds. It's also associated with complications such as bleeding or infection. We may need to restrain the patient. So I work with a large population of patients with intellectual disability. So when they receive NAH, are they going to pull out the tube? Do we need to restrain them physically or chemically? Which is just so sad to see. Sometimes patients are unable to tolerate the feed, so they're nauseous or they vomit, they have diarrhea. And so there are definitely some complications that can be associated with NAH. Yes. I have a older special needs brother-in-law and he's 44, has a uh, intellectual disability cortical. Well, he has microcephaly. Some virus attacked my mother-in-law and to date, they don't know what it is. They don't think it was Zika virus because I mean, she was living in outside of DC at the time, but my husband and both his father were army. And thank you for their service. Yes. Go army, beat Navy. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Don't tell my dad I said that. Um, But um, yeah, but uh, Matthew has CP, autism and intellectual disability. He is 44, cognitively about 10 but he does like to sneak away with my mother-in-law's in-style magazine so he can look at the lovely ladies. And he like blushes when he says that and it's the cutest thing you've ever seen. But, oh my um, God, that's wonderful. It's great. It's, it's, this is our Uncle Maddie. And uh, God, I love that man. And um, <laughs> he and my boys, they have they share Transformers and they play Transformers together because that's kind of where we are in the world. <laughs> and Uncle Matthew, I I do fret over because we don't really talk about our adults with intellectual disabilities that much. There's there's not as much research into that area. And and Matthew never developed a rotary chew. He still has an open mouth by vertical chew pattern with some transitional bolus control because you can see him because he has an open mouth bite. You can see the transitional chew pattern happening, but that's because of his unique craniofacial structure, because of the microcephaly and hypertrophy of adenoids and blah, 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 blah. But creating an advanced directive, this is a conversation that normally happens for the individual, right? Like those are our patients that make that make those decisions on wh- what they want to eat and how they want to drink and those things. But a parent making that decision for their child when their the parent is a... What is the technical term when you're in your 80s? An octogerian or it's got a lot of syllables. That's not my thing. (laughs) 
That um, sounded good to me. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, there's a word for it. People do the Google. Don't do the Google if you're driving. But I, I, I always wonder, like, having to make those decisions for your adult child with special needs. We don't think of IDEA Part A, but I work in the land of IDEA Part C, early intervention. Then there's B, which is school, 3 to 21. But Part A is what happens to our special needs when they hit 21 and up. Mm-hmm. I don't have the answer for that question. That was just a rhetorical question, by the way. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, I love that you actually brought this up because we talk about this all the time because in New York State, these patients are protected because of the Willowbrook School and everything that where is the outcomes of that. So this was a school in Staten Island for patients with intellectually disabilities in mm-hmm. like the 60s and 70s. In Staten Island, and the patients were treated terribly. It was cruel and and terrible treatment for these patients. So since then, we have, in New York State, some protection against patients with intellectual disabilities. However, because of this, a lot of the decisions are made through the state. And sometimes it's in regards to DNR, DNI, and NAH. It's sad for these patients. It's hard. That an overpowering is really making the decisions. We talk about this often. Where I live, we have a large number of group homes. So we we see a large number of patients with intellectual disabilities. Yeah. Bless it. We bought our house and made the basement handicap accessible for him. But now that he's gotten older, we realize the stairs are going to be a problem. So I think we're going to end up having to move to meet his needs. It gives me an opportunity for a bigger garden. So this is this is good justification. Um, that and dandelions in the South. Come on, man. I'm, you're definitely going to have to talk on me for the rest of my life. But um, I mean, we all get on the internet and we see the things that pop up. And when I think of alternate means of nutrition and hydration, I saw this beautiful thing on Instagram where they had these little, it looked like gelatin balls of water. They were like brightly colored and they were highly saturated. I don't know, like they look like a a jawbreaker or like a jolly, like a round jolly rancher, but it was actually dense water packets. I don't even know how to describe this thing that I saw that they were recommending for patients that had dementia to increase hydration. And they were just slightly sweetened water balls. But I mean, do you, do you see different things that are more caloric dance like magic cup or savories for like the transitional crackers. Do you, do you have opportunities to engage with that to improve the quality caloric metabolic intake for the patients? I definitely think it depends on where you work and what your facility has or provides. We have magic cups, which I just love. And I think patients love them, which is even better. We often recommend those or pair with our registered dietitians to recommend them, make sure that they're intaking enough nutrition, hydration. Dr. Reba from Savories is wonderful. I love her. She just recently did a presentation on my health system. So we all were able to trial some of the the foods. And so I often recommend those to our patients who are going home and or our home care therapist, which is so great because we have that communication and collaboration and she's able to also recommend it in our outpatient and home care. So we definitely do use a variety of resources that are out there, which is great. And then, of course, whatever the patient likes, depending upon what they're used to eating or what their 
what their family may bring in. Food is comfort and people want to feed their loved ones. They want to feed their patients. And so families are in crisis when they're not able to do this. And that's something that we really need to remember. Okay. So one of my little ones, um, she had uh, Wolf Hirsch sprung. Wolf Hirsch. Well, yeah, I always want to say Wolf Hirsch horns. There it is. Hirsch sprung's <laughs> disease versus Wolf Hirsch horns. There, I mean, that's a lot of See, this is why I don't have my PhD. Multisyllabic words are difficult. But um, <laughs> but the they family- all to me, so I think you're doing wonderful. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you until you make it, Michelle. Um, but uh, she, had, she has Wolf Hirschhorns, and it's a syndrome that's known for a very distinct Greco-Roman shaping of the skull because they're- forehead and nasal bridge actually looks like a a Roman or Greco-Roman helmet from like, you know, the first two, 300 years of uh, right there around where it goes from AD to BC or whatnot. Okay. Ancient Rome. I should have just said that, whatever. <laughs> and anywho, um, she, her family absolutely loved Chick-fil-A, loved Chick-fil-A. It's the South. We serve food probably all going to be fried and it's all going to have cheese in it somehow or another. I mean, give me a casserole and I will figure out how to put cheese in it, right? <laughs> so the disease is not great. The progression of the syndrome is not optimistic. And she also had some trauma sustained from a nurse, then started a seizure disorder and uh, subsequently had oh to... Um, yeah, had to have a stat intubation due to the severity of seizures and she couldn't snap out of them. And oh um, she, yes, my, my day to day is not easy. <laughs> and um, she would love when she could eat Chick-fil-A sauce, like their special sauce. And, you know, we would mince up chicken nuggets. Oh my gosh, my mouth is salivating just thinking about the Chick-fil-A sauce. And <laughs> so the dad they'd go out two or three mornings a week for Chick-fil-A, right? Because little lady loved it. And when it got bad, he would honestly take the chicken nuggets and the tater tots. It's like a breakfast combo. Sometimes he would throw some of the honey bread in there, but whatever. And he would dump in a couple of the packets of the Chick-fil-A sauce and warm water, toss it in a blender and tube feed it to her because it was her favorite food. And, and he would give her a little bit puree by mouth and then put the rest in the tube. I mean, Registered dietitian, pediatrician, and I were all like, you know, you do you, baby. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's amazing. That is love. I mean, she got to eat everything else. And there's mom doing a gravity feed at the kitchen table, eating her Chick-fil-A biscuit in one hand. And mom's doing a gravity feed. And I'm assisting with quality of life you know, half teaspoon pureed of the exact same stuff that's going through her G-tube. And I mean, it was real food blended up in the tube and we're eating it orally and it brought happiness. That's amazing. Yeah. I love that so much. And I think, you know, that's a perfect example of how the meaning of food is so tied to our social bonds, our moral beliefs, our culture. And like the human experience of living with difficulty swallowing, it, you know, brings forth such a host of distressing psychosocial responses, anxiety, fear. It's so much more than just swallowing. Okay. So I have a thought. I have given this recommendation to bring 
a sense of normalcy for a family when they were really struggling with with that psychosocial piece, right, for their little one. And it was transference, right? That's something that we – sometimes the patient's more at peace, but it's the family that's in their – one of their Kubler-Ross grief cycle stages. And we have to recognize when we're working with our patients in palliative hospice care, the patient's going through the Kubler-Ross if they're seven stages of grief, but also their caregivers. Mm-hmm. And to some extent, we are as well, because maybe it pulls up a trigger for your loved one or your own feelings of mortality. And that's awful, but we have to recognize that that would be one of the implicit biases that we bring. And one of the suggestions that I gave was, hey, we have to use this adaptive cup for your for your little one. And mom didn't like that just the child was drinking out of an adaptive cup. And I said, okay, so you guys have a family of four and you have purchased all of these adaptive cups, how about everybody drink out of the adaptive cup? And then it's not just one individual, it's everyone doing the same. And it's like a fancy tea party. Mm -hmm. I love that. I mean, when I first said it, everybody looked at me like I was crazy. I mean, (laughs) not out of the realm of possibilities, but it helped. Also, I love a nosy cup. I mean, a nosy cup to help that I just, yes, I just, yeah. Where I work, we have a caregiver center, which is just so amazing. It's run by a licensed social worker, and we have some volunteers also in it. And he hosts support groups. And so with that, I am able to host a a swallowing support group for patients and their caregivers, patients with dysphagia. And then I have him as a social worker who is there also. So it's so great. And he has the caregivers in their own support group as well. So he knows them, which which is really wonderful. But we talk about this and that actually has come up because we've done kind of like a mini series of dysphagia during the holidays, because typically, you know, all of our holidays are associated with some type of eating or food, some type of special food that we customarily eat on a special holiday, like hot dogs or hamburgers on the 4th of July or, you know, turkey and pumpkin pie on Thanksgiving. And just hearing the caregivers talk about the stress that they feel and the anxiety that they feel for their loved ones with dysphagia, that whether they don't want to attend a family member's house because they're nervous that the patient may choke or they can't eat or how the patient will feel. It really is so important to take that into consideration also that it's not just the patient, it's also their caregiver. Absolutely. That's amazing. Okay. So what do your, what do the support meetings look like? And I'm just thinking, because somebody somewhere is probably thinking, oh my gosh, why haven't I thought of that? Our facility could support that. Can you briefly describe what some of those meetings look like and what y'all cover? Yes. Right now they're virtual, but surprisingly they are working out pretty well. Everybody, I guess, is used to Zoom by now. It depends. Recently we've been doing almost like mini series. So in the latter part of November and into December, we did dysphagia through the holidays for patients with dysphagia and their caregivers. And so it was myself and then our social worker from the caregiver center. And so each week we had a specific topic. So the first week I ran through the basics of swallowing and swallowing disorders. And then we left some time for patients to talk, for their caregivers to talk and share and interact with the other people on the call. And then the social worker also did a series on 
like stress and stress management through the holidays and how to cope and also went through some like techniques and strategies to use through the holidays more so for stress management and then I also did a whole series on different types of resources so like savories simply thick things of that nature just in case people were unaware of it of course you know depending upon what their diagnosis was if they've seen a speech pathologist and so we did that in the latter part of November and December and we're going to do another one in June for June is dysphagia awareness month with similar topics that's awesome those caregivers are going to take it away and then talk to their support team and who knows who within their support team will be facing that exact same unique challenge, like in, in their personal family and that trickle down ripple effect. Awesome. See, when you put good in the universe, you have no idea how many potential lives it could impact in a wonderful way. And uh, that's awesome. Well done. Thank you. Thank you. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. So we have we've we've circled around advanced directives. We've kind of talked about it. I know we need to talk about the advanced directive, but I once remember in grad school we had a case study, and I don't remember. It was probably in Dr. O'Donohue's dysphagia class. I'm, I'm went to James Madison, so whoop whoop doop doop. But I remember having a research article where they were talking about this woman. Her family kept bringing her back, and she just wanted to die, <laughs> and like which. Sounds awful when you phrase it like that. So she had her advanced directive tattooed on her chest. (laughs) That is one way to get your point across, right? But you're going to have to help me here. She had COPD, but is the term keptic when you are hunched in your, there's like a, a very specific body stance. Is that the correct diagnosis term, I believe? Or kyphosis. Like when that's the word. Yes, kyphosis. That was the word I was looking for. Excellent. Yes. See, between the two of us, we'll <laughs> we'll make it. It's been a long time since I've had to use my adult terminology. So thank you for entertaining the pediatric SLP in the room. But I just thought that that was profound. But that, again, is an extreme example of an advanced directive, getting it tattooed across your chest. But can you kind of talk to us about what is an advanced directive and what's typically in them and where they are typically found? <laughs> Yes, of course. So advanced directives are so important. Um, So it is a legal document. It outlines the preferences that a patient may want, planning for future medical treatment or not medical treatment. So withholding that treatment. There are so many names out there. So sometimes this gets a little confusing. So in New York and some of the, the states on the east side, we have a thing called the MULST, which is a medical order for life sustaining treatment. And essentially, it's just advanced directive. So it's like a hot pink piece of paper. You find it in a chart. It's pink so that it's easily found. And then in other states, they have a pulse, which is a physician's order for life-sustaining treatment. But really, all it is is advanced directives. So the advanced directives go into the patient's wishes. So would they want to be intubated? Would they want to be resuscitated? Would they want alternate means of nutrition, hydration? Would they want short-term means of alternate means of nutrition hydration? So like an NG tube, would they want IV antibiotics or IV fluids? And really a patient can delineate and make those decisions and they can change it at any time. So I think that's so important to know that a patient or a family knows too, is that whatever they decide, they can always change it at any time. 
Do you have one? I know that's super nosy, but like, do you have an advanced directive? Because I'm kind of, I don't, I'm 38. I don't have one, but I mean, I have some opinions that I would like to be carried out and so not carried so out. So, so interesting you say that. And I can't believe I'm going to share this, but <laughs> my coworkers know that my mother will you know, do anything to keep me alive. And so they know that if God forbid, <laughs> knock on wood, anything tragic were to happen, that she is not my decision maker. <laughs> because she will <laughs> do anything. <laughs> and if I can't eat, I, you know, that's that's important to me. So if I can't eat and communicate, you know, the, the two primary things that I work with that can have a problem. Yeah. So there's two very funny, mildly inappropriate things. My dad's advanced directive, um, he joked, but I'm pretty sure it's in there. He said that when when he does finally pass and he's cremated, not to give one of my brothers the ashes because he's pretty sure that my kid brother would flush him because we have this ongoing family poop joke. <laughs> it's like, okay, duly noted. This is terrible. I had one one gentleman who was under palliative care and I promise this kid's connected to an advanced directive. He <laughs> had had seven right hemisphere CBAs. Bless him. Oh seven. I was a CF. As a CF, I knew I was completely in over my head. And as a CF, I reached out to the one and only Dr. Bonnie Martin Harris and asked her questions regarding patients. She, I've never met this woman. I, I know. I Well, I mean, I had, I had cojones as a CF, some day how they have shriveled and gone away. The older I get, my social anxiety kicks in. But like as a CF, I was fearless. And um, I reached out to her and I asked her about like a couple of patient caseloads. She didn't know me. And she took the time to respond to my emails in such a thorough manner that I learned more from those emails than I I don't think she realizes the profound impact that those, her taking those moments for mentorship meant for this young, growing clinician, right? Also, one day I want to meet her and just like in person and tell her that she really is a goddess and I am like forever indebted <laughs> to everything she does for our profession. But like, ah. yeah. um, but we, we had this patient, I, we, I, cause I asked her about these, this, this patient. But we had this patient come in, he had seven right hemisphere CVAs, and he knew that he could not drink thin liquids. He remembered. And so he came in and he smelled awful. Caitlin, I almost like enjoyed my lunch a second time. And I was like, darling, I mean, this is the South, okay? South, Gloucester County, Virginia, come on, man. And I was like, darling, what is that smell? And he was incredibly dysarthric and when he finally got it out, him and his fishing buddies had been doing vodka oyster shots, which is like a normal thing from <laughs> where, where I worked. And so it's vodka with like a raw oyster in the bottom, but he knew he couldn't take it orally. So his buddies shoved it through. They, they chopped it up and shoved it in his G-tube and the oyster pits got stuck in the G-tube. And so I was like, oh, when was that? He was like, hmm. Two or three days ago, I'm really hungry. I haven't been able to get anything in the tube since. And I was like, oh my God. So like I wheeled him over. I mean, it was outpatient clinic attached to the hospital. I explained to the PT rehab manager what happened. We wheeled over, but like quality of life. He was entitled to vodka oyster shots, but we talked about like maybe pureeing it next time or like 
But within his advanced directives, within his quality of life, there was specifics with respect to, and this is something that we don't talk about. A patient goes into a nursing home and they're under palliative care. That doesn't mean that they can't have a cold pint on Friday night or that they can't live a little and have fun. And that's such a, those are conversations that I didn't have in grad school. Those were conversations that weren't brought to my attention. I mean, it was almost as if they went to a nursing home, they went to a structured facility and it was like their quality of life immediately stopped because of that transition. But they're still human and they're entitled to these. And that's the piece that we need to make sure is embedded in that transition. Yes. I agree with you so much that we didn't talk about this in grad school. And I think that oftentimes people are uncomfortable talking about death and dying, or we, we typically talk about just, you know, our rehab model of how can we help them improve or what exercises can we teach them? And sometimes they are not going to get better and that's okay. And we can still do good work. We can still help them. We can still support them and educate them. And that's so important. Yes. Okay. So we have just a few moments left. What advice do you have for anybody out there that is interested in working in this and or they're in it, but they're struggling with that palliative hospice? Those are two very different questions, but if they're interested in working with this age, if they feel a calling to be there for those, that transition, those final moments to be that ray of light, what recommendations do you have for them? I would definitely say there is so much research out there, so much great research in adult land Um, Mm -hmm. to, to go and read. The Center for Palliative and Hospice organization, they have great resources on there also, and they have courses that you can take. If your hospital has a palliative care team, they may already have a subscription to it. So you just hop on through them. But definitely there are so many resources out there for palliative care, end of life, quality of life, and really just communication and how to be an advocate and a support for your patients. So definitely take advantage of them. Awesome. Now, what about to the clinician that's working this walk and is struggling? I would say that it will get better. I think that the more that we talk about death and dying, the more we become comfortable. Having a team is so important and using the team to bounce ideas off of, to be collaborative, depending on where they're struggling. Is it internally their own? You know, are they having difficulty with the death and dying portion of it? Or are they having difficulty with the communication portion of advocating for their patient, educating their patient and their caregiver? I think it depends where they're having difficulty, but definitely utilizing their team and then also doing good self-care because this is not easy. And so they need to make sure that they're going home and they're leaving their work at work and doing good self-care when they get home. Yes. Okay. So I have a theory. I joke about my garden. But my garden is a reflection of where I am, I guess, metaphysically. I mean, spiritually, like what's going on in my heart 
is you can see it in my garden. So when I am struggling in one aspect of my life, it tends to look a little bit more unruly. My garden very much looks like an English country cottage garden, right? I mean, there's perennials and there's no boxwoods or anything like that, but it's just haphazard and joyful. But I have found that when there's too many weeds, that's when I need to go through and pull it out. And those physical acts I can process, what is it that I need to expunge from myself in this moment? And then there's my seasons for planting. And that helps me emotionally process through what it is that I'm, whatever project I'm working on, whatever patient that I'm struggling with. And and truth be told, I had a little one several years ago who had a rare genetic condition and he was a um, a happy little 10-year-old boy and he passed in his sleep. I mean, completely unexpected. His life expectancy was at least 10 additional years. And he went in his sleep and I spent more time in the garden. And then a dear friend pulled up out front and she saw me and she, she pulled in front of the house and I knew she was coming, but I was out back in the dirt, in the mulch, completely <laughs> covered in. I also garden in an apron with pearl earrings. If that doesn't say I'm Southern, <laughs> I don't know what it does, but like whatever. Okay. And she came, she came down the hill and it was at that moment that I was able to like, have the cry that I needed and then sit back and say, I was there when he needed me through my work. He was able to convey the messages that were important for him to his family. And we were able to have those special moments and break bread to the consistency with which he could. And I fulfilled my purpose for being a presence in his life. And the power of a garden. Also, I hate my clay dirt and dandelions, but like whatever. (laughs) I I love that. And I give you so much support and strength and power that you are able to do what you do because I don't know that I could. Um, That's so amazing. But I agree with you. I think it's so important that we all have our ways to release after work. Yes. Especially in these difficult times and and with, you know, heart-wrenching cases. Yes. Yes. So moral of the story, wine and bubble baths are great. Facials are fantastic, (laughs) but they're surface area cover-ups. Ooh, do you follow SLP Stress Management with Jesse Andrix? Oh, no, I don't. I'll have to. Oh, I love her. She is genuinely one of the kindest humans ever. She's got a website and a podcast and she's an SLP and she focuses on meaningful stress care. And she taught me a trick of to do versus must do. And that has helped me tremendously. Everybody's got a to-do list, insurmountable. Focus on the must do. This is what must be accomplished on this day. And She's just wonderful. I highly recommend her. Okay. All right. We are way over on time, but this was these were the conversations we needed to have. Caitlin, you're phenomenal. Absolutely heartfelt thank you for all that you do and for raising awareness both across the state of New York and across our country. So if someone wants to learn more from you or learn more about the Dysphagia Outreach Project and how Dysphagia Outreach Project can plug into end-of-life care, palliative care measure, um, supports, 
How do they reach you? What are the next steps? So the Dysphagia Outreach Project, we can be found on social media, on Instagram or Facebook. It is Dysphagia Outreach Project. Or you could check out our website, dysphagiaoutreach.org. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Caitlin. Hey, friends. Thank you so much for listening to Understanding Dysphagia. Remember that if you'd like to earn credit for this episode, complete the accompanying audio course registered for ASHA CEUs on speechtherapypd.com. And if you are interested in joining speechtherapypd.com, I have some exciting news. This month, in honor of Dysphagia Awareness Month, June 1st to June 30th, 2021, for every registration with speechtherapypd.com that uses the coupon code capital D, capital O, capital P for Dysphagia Outreach Project, $10 will come off every single subscription, every price whether you want the little package or the big package, and that $10 will in turn be donated to Dysphagia Outreach Project. So if you want this episode that grew your evidence-based practice to pay it forward a little bit more, join speechtherapypd.com and don't forget to use the coupon code DOP for Dysphagia Outreach Project. Happy learning, y'all. Bye.